Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from the Horsham Church of Christ. For more information, please visit our website at www.horsham.org.au. Thank you, Pamela. I want to add to Gary's communion talk. Thank you, Gary, for leading us in communion again. Uh, In terms of respect, I think um, one of our greatest challenges, even within the church, is that we don't respect ourselves. And because we can't actually don't respect ourselves, we don't actually respect one another. And maybe respect isn't strong enough a word. We don't love ourselves, and therefore we don't actually know how to love each other. And not, not in a, an egotistical, not in a boastful sense of love, but in a Christ-like, redeemed, child of God kind of love. As Ross mentioned as he led worship this morning, that we would actually know that we are sons and daughters of God, that we are children of God. We're no longer slaves to fear, we're no longer slaves to sin. If you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour of your life, if you've said yes to following Jesus, if you are a disciple of Him, then you are one with Him. He is alive in you, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places, you have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ isn't one that actually doesn't love oneself. Jesus said, as I have loved you, now love one another. We live in a world that is dying to know what it is to be loved. And that starts with us. Well, it starts with Jesus, but it continues through us because he has called us to love one another as he first loved us. And some of us would say, well, yeah, I I love myself, I take care of myself and yeah, I love myself. What are, what are the conversations that you have with yourself? What are the thoughts that you have? What are the, the things? Experts say there's thousands of things that we say to ourselves every single day. And some massive proportion of those are negative thoughts. More than half, apparently. I don't know how they come up with this. Like, who is counting how many thoughts people have? Like, that? what a job. I don't know. But they, apparently... We have more negative thoughts about ourselves than any other type of thought. For some of us, it might be about the life that we live, the life that we haven't lived, the life that we've got yet, yet to live, the clothes that we wear, the shape of our body, the lack of hair on our heads. Let's not go there. The money we have, the money we don't have, the house we have, the house we don't have. The stuff we don't have, the stuff we do have, the family we do have, the family we don't have. And all of it, all of that negates the fact that we are loved children of God. My kids, first and foremost, above all else, well, after the fact that they need to know that they are loved by Jesus, made in the image of God, the next most important thing I want my children to grow up and know for the entirety of their lives is that I love them no matter what. No matter what they've got, no matter where they go, no matter what they do, no matter what they do to me, no matter what they might say or don't say to me, the most important thing is they know that their mum and their dad loves them. 
And so we raise them with that kind of mindset and that instills value and worth in them so that come what may in their lives ahead, they know that they have people that love them no matter what. What would it look like for us as the church, as sons and daughters of God, if we lived unconditionally in the safety of the knowledge that we are loved by Jesus Christ? What would that actually do with the way that we love one another, the way that we speak to each other, the way that we approach, the way that we think about each other? What would be the first words out of our mouths if we operated 100% from the fact that we are loved children of God and all around us are sons and daughters of God? That, that would change the world. That would change the world. I don't say this in condemnation or judgment. I say this in the hope of all of us being known, or all of us to know that we are loved sons and daughters of God, above all else. Even if you don't love Jesus, He loves you. He loves you. For it is by grace you've been saved, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this isn't from yourselves. This is a gift of God so that nobody can boast. Why? Because we are God's workmanship. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's poetry in motion, one translation says. That's us. God's masterpiece. Made in his image. And that's why we can actually love ourselves with Christ-like love and love each other. So can we just, where we are, just close our eyes, just bow our heads, just so we're not distracted, but so we can actually fix our thoughts and our eyes on Jesus. And Father, in this moment, I pray for every single one of us, for me, for people in this building, people watching online, even the people that, couldn't make it here today for whatever reason it might be. Lord, that we would all encounter you and encounter your love. Not the love that we know in our heads and that we've read about in our Bibles time and time again, but we would actually encounter you as the God of love. That we would be shaped and transformed. That we would live lives of boldness and courage because no matter what we know that we are loved by the creator of the universe. God, may we know that we have been bought for a price and that our value is found in your redeeming love. In this moment, I pray that we would know your tangible presence, your manifest presence in our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our souls. May your love manifest in the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about you, the way that we think and speak to and about the people around us. Mm. May we be people who love because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, sorry to disappoint you, that's not even the message, so open your Bibles. Mark chapter 2. I'm not sorry at all, actually. That's not the message. Mark chapter 2. We're going to get to there in a minute. 
Uh, before we do that, a couple of things I want to remind you of. Thank you uh, again for your generosity as a giving church. Many of us, a large portion of us, give online either through the Generous app or through the website, and you can do that if you're not sure on those details. If you are still of the cash-giving variety, there will be an usher at the door um, who's happy to collect your offerings as you leave today. But whether you give today, whether you give during the week, uh, just encourage you to continue to make that um, an act of worship. We don't do it in here as part of the worship service anymore, um, but all of us collectively giving as the church uh, continue to be a blessing to God and to continue to further His work here in Horsham and around the world. And it's kind of cool that we get to be a part of that um, in the variety of ways, in the ways that we give either on a Sunday here or we give throughout the week. So thank you for uh, your part and your generosity uh, in giving toward, towards the work of the Lord on an ongoing basis. Uh, now, one other thing that we want to do in family life, church life. Lily, will you come up here and join me, please? I know you'll be super excited, but this is actually Lily Risson's last Sunday with us, um, and we don't actually get to farewell everybody, but Lily's been, yeah, come up here. Um, Lily's been a part of our worship team for a long time, and she loves, loves. No, I love you. That's why we're doing this. I just talked about love. Why, why, what's the matter? <laughs> Did you want to say a few no, words? You want a microphone? No, thank you. Okay, all right. Well, we have a small gift okay. for you. We're going to get you flowers, but they'll be dead in a week. So we thought we'll get you a plant. That will also be dead in a week. No, it won't be dead in a week. Okay. This is, do you know what this is? No. It's a peace lily. So from all of us, the worship team and from uh, your church family here, we just uh, want to bless you and encourage you as you go off to... Well, away. away. Greener pastures, Ballarat. Um, I know it's only a couple of hours of the road, down the road, but we will miss you. I know that your family will miss you very much. We try not to talk about it too much. I'm sorry. No, you made your mum cry, not me. But we, we love you and uh, we'll miss you and uh, we just, yeah. Thanks. We think the world of you and pray that, yeah, I'll just pray for you, yeah? Okay. That'd be the best way. Father, thank you for Lily. Thank you that she's made in your image. Thank you that she is uh, made to reflect your kindness and your likeness to the world around her. And Lord, we bless her. We bless her in your name that she would be aware of your presence today and every day. Uh, and in this new season of life, whatever might come her way, that she would continue to look to you, that she would encounter you in the days and the weeks ahead, Lord. She'd be aware of your presence, your guiding, uh, your wisdom, and, and ultimately your love. Uh, we pray for her family as well, Lord, in this time of change and grieving and loss and just life that continues to be different, that they would know your peace uh, and your comfort and that there would be times of joy amidst the sadness, Lord. And just uh, for peace that surpasses understanding in this season of transition. Thank you for all that Lily has brought to us as a worship team and as a church for the way that she's led us in worship over the last few years. Uh, we just pray she would continue to uh, worship you and to know you one-on-one -on -one, uh, as a child would know their father. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lil. We love you. That wasn't too bad, was it? Fine, Fine? yeah. Mm. <laughs>
family. All right, Mark chapter 2, you there? All right, uh, but yeah, if you uh, like to do it on your smartphone, you can use the Version Bible app and all the scriptures are uh, loaded there for you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles um, up behind the sound desk. Feel free to grab it. If you don't have a Bible in your house, feel free to grab a Bible and keep it. Uh, we don't mind giving them away at all. Um, we encourage it. All right, so Mark chapter 2. And we're continuing our journey through Mark. One of the things that I want to remind us as a church is... Um, not um, so we've, we've had the death we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus over the Easter season we live um, knowing that Christ is risen he's risen indeed uh, and now we're in the season if we followed a traditional church calendar um, we're in this season where we're so Jesus is risen and is spending time with the disciples and appearing to them multiple times before his ascension into heaven and then sometime after that is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out on those uh, praying and fellowshipping in the upper room. And that happens for us this year, that's May 23. Uh, so it's about seven, eight, seven-ish weeks away. But just in, in getting ready for today, I don't want us to lose um, the weight of, of the season, I guess, that in between the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost, that would continue to be aware of what, Jesus did in that season and the birth of the, the church at that time, but also what Jesus is doing and wants to do amongst us as the church uh, today. And we'll continue to reflect on that as we move towards uh, the Ascension and Pentecost. Um, but just want to encourage you in that. And if you, there's different plans, Bible reading plans that you can read through that help you journey through that uh, in, in Scripture, in the Version Bible app, just encourage you to be mindful of that as we move forward. So we did Easter last weekend and now we're going back to where we were before we went into the Easter period um, on our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 2 verse 23, reading from, um, and this is one of those weird spots, we'll read into chapter 3 verse 6 where there's a weird chapter break. So just ignore the chapter break and read this as Mark writing it. Um, to the early believers. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. Um, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So uh, where, where Jesus there says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is an expression that Jesus uses to refer to himself time and time again. And he's getting that uh, from the prophet Daniel, who actually talks about an anointed one who is to come centuries before Jesus shows up. And so this is part of what starts to rile the Pharisees up in Jesus' life and ministries, that Jesus says, the Son of Man is amongst you. Here I am, because they know what that prophecy is from Daniel, and they know that it's referring to the anointed one, the Messiah, who is to come. And now this young buck from Nazareth shows up and says, well, I am he. Um, and the Pharisees don't agree with him, um, and so they, that's what part of upsets them. 
Uh, continuing in chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. It's interesting just to read through and look at when Jesus... Jesus asks a lot of questions. And often he answers a question with a question, which I find really annoying. I'm like, Jesus, if I ask you a question, I want an answer, not another question. But it's his way of actually engaging people in the process um, and figuring out what his will is. Um, But often people don't say anything when Jesus asks a question, and sometimes that's the best way to go. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Amen. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That escalated quickly, didn't it? So I want to look at particularly, there's a couple of different aspects of this reading I want to look at. Uh, And firstly, I want to um, highlight the attitude of the Pharisees and how it changes quite quickly according to Mark. It might have been over some, a period of a few weeks or even longer. Um, But what happens? So if we go back to uh, chapter 2, there's five, um, commentators call it five controversies that happen very quickly all through chapter 2 and in the, into chapter 3. So I want to highlight them quickly so you can see what's happening with the Pharisees in their relationship towards Jesus. Uh, so the first one, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 12, in verses 6 to 7, um, this is where Jesus heals um, the man who's let down through the roof so his friends can't get him into the building. So they go up on the roof, dig a hole and let him down, which would have been amazing to see that. Um, Verse, so chapter 2, verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow, Jesus, talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking in these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your, you, say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. And no, they hadn't. Jesus um, healing people was radical even in those days. So here is the first instance and the Pharisees are watching what Jesus is doing. The teachers of the law are watching. They don't even ask him a question. They just think it. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knows that and then answers out loud what they're thinking in their head. Now, would that not freak you out? Like, I'm married to somebody like that and that's freaky alone. That's a different story. <laughs> that's a rabbit trail. And listen, look, Gary, love the communion talk. Can we stop having examples about food, please? <laughs> I'm, I'm certain I could actually smell hot cross buns before, but anyway, um, stop it. 
The next one. So that's controversy one. The next one, uh, when Jesus calls Levi and then he's having dinner at Levi's house. Uh, verse 16, chapter 2, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, so we get a definition on the teachers of the law, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus answers them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I love that. So in this one, the Pharisees now ask the disciples. They don't ask Jesus. They ask the disciples. Jesus hears them and answers them. Next one, number three. Uh, Jesus has a question about fasting. So John's disciples, uh, we know John and Jesus are cousins. John baptizes Jesus. Um, John's disciples has followers and disciples and the Pharisees they're fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the, of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And then Jesus gives them an answer. Now, another gospel actually says after that account, two of John's disciples stop following him and go and hang out with Jesus. Like we talk about food. They're like, well, John's fasting. Jesus isn't. I'm going with Jesus. Kind of smart. Anyway. So that's the third controversy. There's no dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus necessarily, but Jesus speaks to their concerns about fasting. Number four, the first one that we've read today. When the Pharisees come to Jesus after seeing the disciples pick heads of grain um, and say, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus responds to them, and then we don't see a response from the Pharisees. This, you'll see where we're going with this in a minute. And then the fifth and final one, um, Jesus is in a synagogue on the Sabbath and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And later, uh, further down, verse 6, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So here in the space that we have it as a chapter, however long it might have actually taken in real life. We have the Pharisees seeing Jesus heal the, the paralyzed man who's let down through the roof. And they've got some questions, but they don't ask them out loud. Initially, they're like, who's this guy? Why does he talk like that? He's blaspheming. And they just think it. So they've got some doubts, they've got some questions, and they don't get it resolved, obviously because they're not on board with who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. All right? So you can see that there's the seeds of doubt. And then as we get further along, we see their questions starting to come out more. They're asking them out loud. They're asking the disciples. They're asking Jesus himself um, until it gets to the point where they're just like, all right, we're going to kill this guy. So what starts over here has doubt and questioning of who Jesus is and what he says ends up over here as murderous intent. Now, I'm not saying that any of us are you know, pharisaical by nature, but we have to be careful in our own relationship with Jesus and in the world that we live in today that we don't take our doubts and our uncertainty and our fear and let it lead to complete separation or like death in a spiritual sense. 
Because it's really easy and there's a lot now, and I think it's kind of been, um, it's been accelerated because of the internet and social media. There's a lot of doubt and uncertainty and questioning um, and challenging even of scriptural authority and the authority and nature of who Jesus is and what he did. And it starts out as some doubts and some uncertainty and it's a very short walk to complete separation from the truth of gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour of the world. Does that make sense? We need to be careful, we need to be on our guard that we actually cling to the truth who is Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Now, in the world that we have today, there is an increasing movement that says there is no absolute truth. The truth is what is true for me, and what is true for me isn't necessarily true for you, which is a lie from the pit of hell. Because Jesus, as Glenda opened this morning, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through him. And what starts over here is doubt and questioning. If we, let it, if we harbor that and we become resentful because our questions don't get answered or because we don't understand or we don't see Jesus come through the way that we would want him to or we don't see what we think should happen can lead up to being murderous intent or spiritual death where we say, well, I don't understand, I don't get it, Jesus, you haven't shown up the way that I want you to, therefore I'm disconnecting from Jesus and making up my own truth. And we might sit here and think, well, that's not going to happen, I wouldn't think that. No, and they probably didn't think that either, but it's not a very short, it's not a very long walk from questioning and doubt to complete separation from the truth. And we need to ensure that our hearts remain pure and steadfast to the truth. Why do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we, we pray. We get into God's word. We lean on his word for understanding. We stay in community. We stay connected to those that have gone before us, to those who um, are further along in their life with Jesus, who have maturity, who can disciple us, who can be the iron sharpening iron. If we disconnect from God, if we disconnect from community, then it's a fast track to just believing that, well, my truth is the truth. And we let go of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Um, The the next aspect that I want to highlight, are you all okay? Good. Um, None of us are Pharisees, so that's okay. Uh, Is is what is the deal with the Sabbath? Now, we might have read this, we might have read about the Sabbath, and we might have some understanding of the Sabbath. Traditionally, the Sabbath is... The Saturday, um, and so why do we have church on a Sunday? We have church on a Sunday because that is a tradition, a way of life that the early church established because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. So the early church started meeting, they did meet together and fellowship um, every day of the week for some time, but there came a point when they chose Sunday as the day. I think it's in about Acts chapter 20, they meet on the first day of the week. Uh, for the breaking of bread and for the fellowship. And so that's why we have church gatherings predominantly on a Sunday rather than a Saturday. And there's many churches and movements that still meet together on a Saturday and hold um, Saturday as the Sabbath. Orthodox Jews still have the Saturday as the Sabbath. There are um, Jewish hotels that cater for um, Orthodox Jews um, where they might have an elevator and the elevator will stop at every floor on the Sabbath so that people can get in and not have to press any of the buttons. 
because pressing the button would constitute work. Now, we can laugh, but this is what's happened. So let's, let's go through Scripture and see how we got from God's idea of Sabbath to don't press any buttons in an elevator because that's work. All right? Some of you are freaking out. You're like, how can I start my microwave if I can't press buttons? You'll be fine. Okay, so uh, the Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word meaning rest or cease. So where do you think is the first instance in Scripture of the Sabbath? Genesis. In the in creation story. That's right. So uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. God rested from his work. He blessed this day and he made it holy. Um, there is evening and morning. Uh, no, sorry. And he blessed this day and made it holy. So every other day of creation has a description. There is evening and morning, the nth day of the week. But for the Sabbath day, there is no evening and morning. It's the day that God rested from his work. And the idea is that this day was to describe what life in the Garden of Eden was meant to be like. That on this day, that humanity was meant to rest in their relationship with God because he rested from his work. This was meant to be the setting for humanity in fellowship with God. Remember that the Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve, that he was in fellowship in this relationship, this sabbatical nature of relationship with humanity, and we blew it. Um, Exodus, uh, you can just write these down and come back to them later if you're not um, looking it up as we go through. Exodus uh, chapter 16 when God provides manna for the Israelites in the wilderness, and on six days there would be fresh manna in, in the morning, on the seventh, on the Sabbath, there was no manna. They were meant to collect twice as much on the sixth so they'd have enough for day six and the Sabbath, but there wouldn't be any um, on the Sabbath. And you read through that account in, uh, in Exodus 16 and chapter 20, we'll get to it in a minute. There's still people, even though the Lord says there'll be none on the Sabbath, collect twice as much on the day before there'll be no manna on the sabbath there's still people that go out and look for manna on the sabbath and it's easy to read like i love gary's um honesty that you know he says we're all guilty of this i know that i'm guilty of the lord says something but still oh, i think ah oh, really maybe i just I, I should i should check just in case he was a bit off like there's still you know, some lack of faith in there. But the Lord says to the entire nation of Israel, don't go out on Sabbath. Have a rest. And there's still people that go, what's going on, Moses? Because they go and ask Moses and complain to Moses. Say, Moses, there's no manna. And Moses said, what did the Lord tell you? There would be no manna today. Um, the invitation there is that all of Israel, the nation as an entirety, would trust in the Lord and rest on this day together. They would have a complete day of rest. Exodus 20, the fourth commandment, God makes it official. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. You shall not do any work. Why? Because the Lord rested on the seventh day and blessed it and made it holy. It was meant to be a day of complete rest and, and no work. Moses actually writes later on in the law um, that nobody should light a fire on the Sabbath day. They were to avoid work as much as possible. Deuteronomy 5, 
Observe the Sabbath. So we go from remembering every commandment about the Sabbath in Exodus is remember. In Deuteronomy, it changes. It shifts gears a little bit and it says observe the Sabbath. So now we have remembering and observing the Sabbath. And the reason shifts. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then there's an idea of a sabbatical year, which is every seventh year. And then every cycle of seven years, so in the 50th year, we'd have the year of Jubilee, when debts are forgiven and slaves are set free. Um, I think there might be once that there's record of that happening, but I'm not sure. All right, so you've got all that. So that's kind of the Old Testament framework for what the Sabbath is and why we have the Sabbath. Now what happens um, in the era, they call it Second Temple Era, which is about 500 years before Jesus is on the scene through to about 70, 70 AD or 70 CE as they call it now. Um, there's a whole lot of rabbinic teaching that takes place um, and exposition and commentary on the law. So we have the law which is the first five books of our Old Testament and then rabbis and teachers in the law would take that and then provide a running commentary on how they think that was meant to be lived out. So we have like a basic command given by God through Moses to the people about what the Sabbath is meant to be. Have a rest, work, it's holy. I rested from making creation, you rest from work. All right. They then take that and then there's an ongoing conversation. It's something like 39 different elements of what constitutes work. And so now in modern, for modern day Orthodox Jews, some of them will not drive a car because starting the car creates a spark. A spark is a fire and Moses said, don't light a fire. So stay away from that. Some of them will not press the button at the pedestrian crossing because pressing the button will constitute work. Some Orthodox Jews, they'll turn the, all the lights on in their house on the night before Sabbath before Sabbath starts on sunset, at sunset, so they won't have to flick the switch. So this is where a lot of people um, hold on to their idea of Sabbath. So we are not of the Jewish ilk. So we don't hold to that idea of the Sabbath. Yet I still believe it's important to have a Sabbath day of rest, to set aside one day, if you were, that is holy. And there's numerous science and medical research that talks about having an attitude of rest, having a culture of rest within our own lives and the way that we live our lives and that we need to abide by in terms of the wisdom that comes from, from the Lord. So the Pharisees are watching Jesus and the disciples and they're like, they're picking heads of grain. For the Pharisees, that constitutes work. And Jesus um, it highlights what David did when he was hungry, when he went and ate the bread from the temple, which wasn't actually for David. Um, it was for the priests. And Jesus highlights to them, look, it, the Sabbath wasn't made to be this constrictive nature where you have to abide by the rules and you know, the Sabbath rules over you. No, no. Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath was made so that you could actually remember and observe and treat it as the day of holiness. Not so that you would have to come up with a whole bunch of rules that would actually further confine what you could or could not do on that day. And so for some, it was this religious restrictive day when they had to abide by all these rules. And still for a lot of people today, in the Jewish tradition, um, they live 
in this way. And Jesus comes and says, no, no, you've actually missed the point. This wasn't meant to be constrictive in its nature. This was actually meant to be that you could have life, that you could actually remember what God has done in the creation of the world and in freeing you from slavery in Egypt. This is so you could remember who God is and what he's like. And that because God rested from his work, that you could rest from your work. It's not to say that we would have a whole bunch of rules to follow, but we could actually, like God, rest. Like God, we could enter into holiness and know what it is to not just be working flat out seven days a week. Jesus came that we might have life and have life in abundance. What is it to trust the Lord? What is it to trust God even when there's still things that have to be done? Even when there's more work to do? Does anybody have an empty to-do list? Is there anybody that's just like ticked off everything that you have to do and you don't have anything waiting for you when you get home or tomorrow when you get up and get to work? Is there anybody that's just crossed it all off? No. And, uh, did I say one hand? No. I talk to people that are retired and they say, you know what, I thought I'd have so much time when I got retired. I'm busier than ever. There's always something to do. Always. Yet what I've discovered in my own life, my own relationship with God, is that I can keep looking at all the things that have to be done and keep going and keep going and do long hours and, and work long days and work hard and all that and think, well, I'll just, I'll just keep going on this day. I'll keep going you know, for these hours. I'll, I'll keep doing this. But there's always more. As soon as this t- is ticked off the to-do list, there'll be something else that's added on afterwards. And I have to come to a point where I say, God, I actually trust in you that I can rest like you did. That I work hard and I rest hard because... Graham Cook says rest is warfare. Because when I rest, I'm actually trusting that God will provide all of my needs. That I don't need to keep slaving away at things to get them done, but I can actually trust God to be my rest, to be my peace. Jesus never questions the importance or the sacred nature of the Sabbath. He visits the synagogue on the Sabbath. He participates, as do his followers and those who seek him out. The question is never the importance of the Sabbath, but what constitutes work and what is allowed? I want to um, revisit this story of Jesus in the synagogue with the man, the shriveled hand. There's this whole school of thought in in rabbinic teaching, rabbinic culture, about uh, what constitutes work, like I talked about. And is it actually... Is it lawful to heal somebody? Is it lawful to restore life on a Sabbath? Or does that constitute work? Like, What kind of crazy thinking is that do you have to go through where you go, well, it's the Sabbath, so I'm not actually sure if I should heal you or save you today. I see that you're dying. I see that you're in peril, but it's the Sabbath. Do I break my Sabbath in order to save your life? And she's like, no, you've missed the point. Um, and so here is this person uh, with a shriveled hand in front of Jesus in the, in the synagogue. And he says to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then he asked all of them there, including the Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. Now we read that and we go, well, 
Now, obvious answer is like to do good, isn't it? Because it's not even a question here now for Jesus of what about the Sabbath. It's like, are you going to choose life or death? And they don't answer him. And I feel that this is the invitation that we have today. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Many of us will know this. There's other bits and pieces about the Sabbath, but I'll finish it here. See, having a Sabbath, uh, Rome, uh, Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he said, for one day every day is holy, for another day is set apart during the week. Romans uh, 14. And so for some of us, we observe a Sabbath day when we'll have a day of rest and completely set apart from work and we define for ourselves what work might look like. Um, I remember growing up, like Sundays were our Sabbath day and it didn't do a lot, like it was rest. It was rest. But we, when, when I got married and, and we were kind of figuring out life for ourselves and like we enjoyed being out in the garden, doing things in the garden and some might consider that work, but it was restful for us and we enjoyed it and it was life-giving and it was creative. And so we, you know, everybody I think has to figure that out for, for ourselves, but I think what it is to have an attitude of rest, to trust in the Lord, to have... Um, a culture of Sabbath where we can trust in him and have a day that is holy, have a day that is rest, but what that looks like, I think we actually need to figure out in relationship with the Father. And this is ultimately the invitation that Jesus extends to every single one of us, no matter where we're at, in regards to the Sabbath. In my Bible, it's titled, Rest for the Weary, as the worship team comes up. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. For this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, because of all of that, that's his introduction to the next sentence, all right? Because of all that, because of who the Father is and because of who the Son is and because they know each other and because of who the Son invites into relationship, Jesus extends this invitation that we can take a hold of. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can we just close our eyes and just come before the Lord? And I just invite you just to listen into the Holy Spirit and what He might be doing, um, what He might be saying to you in this moment. And maybe you feel completely at peace, you feel completely at rest, there's no striving, there's no struggle. There's no hint of distrust in who Jesus is or what he might be doing in your life at the moment. But maybe there is some of that struggle, maybe there's that striving where it's just, I'm not sure if God's going to come through in this moment. I'm not sure if I can trust God with this aspect of my life. Could I actually dedicate one day of the week to be holy, to be set apart, to be a day when I rest and cease from work. When I stop striving, when I stop 
working? What does it look like to have an attitude of Sabbath that I can actually rest from performing, rest from struggling to achieve, rest from struggling to be what other people might expect me to be, but I can see myself as God sees me and trust in him for his peace and his provision. Maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe this is the first time or the tenth time you've heard about this Jesus who is the Prince of Peace, who is the way, the truth and the life. And you're like, Jesus, I want to know your peace. I want to know what it is to have your rest guiding my life. And if that's you and the Spirit's prompting you in this moment, I just invite you to just raise your hand and say, that's me, I just want to accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour. I want to say yes to his peace, his comfort, his rest in my life. I don't want to go another day without knowing him as Lord and Saviour. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would know your peace and your comfort. We would know what it is to completely trust in you. That there would be no striving. That we'd know that we are not slaves to sin, slaves to fear. That we have been set free from slavery. That we are children of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Because of your death and your resurrection, we have eternal life. May we remember this. May we do more than observe it, but live lives full of your peace. We speak to all the doubts, the worry, the fear in people's minds and hearts in this moment. We say, enough is enough. And we release peace that surpasses understanding. In this hour, in this day, that people would encounter you. Speak to people whose minds might be racing in this minute, who might feel like there's so much noise if, even in their own heads, their own hearts, that they can't hear your voice through it all, above it all, Lord. And we silence all the lies and the voices of the enemy who comes to steal, kill and destroy, that your voice would be heard through it all. Your voice would be the only voice that's heard in this moment, Lord. We speak to the thoughts of suicide and we say you have no place, you have no authority and command you to leave in the name of Jesus. We speak to the spirit of depression, the spirit of anxiety and say you have no place, you have no authority and plead the blood of Jesus over the minds and hearts of those who have been suffering under those spirits. Thank you, Jesus, that we have been bought for a price. Thank you that you paid for it all on the cross and that we receive all that you have to give us because of who you are and what you've done.
as we sing this last song, a song of uh, declaration and, and belief, I just invite you, if, if you have said yes to following Jesus and accepted him as Lord and served your life, I just invite you to come down the front and we can talk about that, we can celebrate with you and we can take that journey together. If you need prayer, further prayer in your life, And before, sorry, like I feel I've rushed on. Like I feel like God's doing something, and we can just go on and we can sing another song and feel good because it's an awesome song and we love the tune and we love the words. But I feel like God's doing something that would actually be dismissed if we just moved on in this moment. So, God, we just submit ourselves to you. Whatever you're doing, God, come and do it. Jesus, you came that we might have life and have life in abundance and that we receive you, we receive the life that you have to give us. Holy Spirit, come.